Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Good to have you with us, everybody. It is Monday, March 29th, 2016, and we are broadcasting live from Austin, Texas. We appreciate you taking time to dial in. Look at people dialing in. Look at this switchboard. It's loading up people all over the top. And people say, who's interested in regulation? Well, obviously, a lot of people on this call are interested, and we're pleased, so thrilled to have you here with us. Again, this program is created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we're the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Innovation Award. So good to have you with us, everybody. We have as our special topic again uh, Alice Alvey, who's here going to be talking about the Humda updates. As most of you are aware, CFPB issued a finalized uh, home mortgage disclosure or Humda rule in October. It had some changes in it. But with all the focus on TRID, many are unaware of the newest Humda rules, which adds 25 new data points and modifies 14 other data points. In addition, you're going to have to be start reporting on new products, reverse mortgage loans, uh, home equity loans, and Alice is going to tell us all about all the rest of it. Again, so many of you dialing in literally from all parts of the country. We're honored to have you be a part of this podcast and telling others about it. So we are here. Again, we do this as a public service created for mortgage professionals, for mortgage professionals. It's our give back. We're I'm 43 years, gosh, that makes me an old man, in this industry, and it's an honor and privilege to work with many of our listeners. And uh, In fact, we got a call from on Friday, got an email, a LinkedIn connection, and it goes, I've discovered as a result of the ArchMI interview last week uh, that I just it was forwarded to me. I started listening, and I'm driving to a particular place, and uh, it's a two-hour drive. We're listening to all these podcasts. My husband and I are, and it is so much fun. And so she says, I'll be a regular listener. So I don't have authorization to mention her name, but it's really an honor to hear from you, and we thank you so much. A special <clears throat> excuse me, thank you goes out to our sponsors, ArchMI. We heard from uh, David Gansberg last week, who is the innovator of the RateStar Innovative Product. It is a product that we're going to hear about just a little bit later. Also, Motivity Solutions, which has the business intelligence technology that's real-time and provides the nation's leading real estate mortgage professionals with real-time reporting and dashboards and scorecards, and also Velma, Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant, that's what Velma stands for, is dedicated to helping you build stronger and more profitable relationships. And they're now teaming up with several other vendors. There's some really exciting stuff. Check it out at Velma.com. And uh, I encourage you to look them up. They are really, uh, it's the connections. It's really about getting connected with other people that complement your services Find out what you do well, and then find others uh, that you that you get along well with, and interact well with, and then form tight relationships with them. That's what Velma's doing. Check it out at their website, Velma V E L M A dot com. Then also a big thank you to Simplify, our newest sponsor. Uh, they are helping lenders in a post-trade world. You know, timing is effort is of essence, especially when you're dealing with communication. There's so many issues we're hearing about where lenders are not able to communicate in an effective, real, trackable, editable way um, 
with the closing agents as one example. And Simplifile has a tool that I'm most excited about where you as a lender communicate either through texting, through uh, messaging. They have the service, not texting, the messaging. And it's much faster. It's real-time chatting and, uh, and messaging. And you have then an edible, audible track to pr- track record or uh, be able to give evidence of what you communicated and when. So it's really effective, and those that are using it are having great results. In fact, we did um, this past week, we did a compliance ease webinar on the topic, and uh, one of the topics, one of the questions that came out of the audience from that, we had a huge attendance from that. It's really good. John Vong and the team there at Compliance East put this on, and they were asking, what are some of the solutions that you're finding for communicating with settlement agents? And I brought up Simplify. So a great group of people. Check them out at Simplifile, S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I-L-E.com. And then also want to say a special thank you to Alice and Joe and Andy and Paul and Sam and all those that make this program the number one most listened to podcast in the industry. Quick update on the MBA conferences and events. Andy Schell is doing, again, the webinar with the MBA. For, it's a second in a four-part series, if I think I have that right, that is uh, talking about accounting. We're going to hear a little bit about that when Andy talks. But we also have March 10th, the uh, condominium lending um, workshop that's going on in Crystal City, Virginia, as well as April 3rd through the 6th, the National Technology Conference in uh, the MBA's Technology Conference in LA. It's at the JW Marriott. I'll be doing a live bot podcast, live broadcast. This broadcast will be done on Monday and we'll be doing it from the DNH booth. So if you're around there, come on by. Love to interview you live on the television on television. Well we're not television yet. We're live on the radio. So we're uh we swing by the DNH booth. Love to see you there. Well, let's get over to Joe. Oh, Mortgage Action Alliance, if you haven't signed up for it, I always want to put that word out for that. Google it, find out, get signed up. And uh, let's get over to Joe Farr. Looking at the markets right now, Joe, it looks like we've got you know, some interesting yeah, – it's kind of not not terribly volatile, but there's lots of squiggly no. lines going up and down in your grass. Some volatility here. We're, we're close to the best levels of the day, so that's good. Yeah, that's good news. And I'm looking at the Chicago PMI report, and that was a big miss, as was pending home sales. Wow, tell us about it. Yeah, we'll get it really into was. I mean, well, no, that's 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 drove uh, markets higher this morning. Um, the pending home sales fell two and a half percent. A half a point increase was expected, so that was a, a big miss. Um, and then Chicago PMI fell to uh, under 50, which is uh, an indication of contraction. Uh, now it's been there before, but uh, uh, at 47.6, it was expected to be 53. So that's a bit of a miss uh, to the downside as well. So yeah, that weaker data um, was good for mortgage rates. You know, not not yep. great, but good for mortgage rates today, this morning anyway. Yeah, then let's then, take a look at what. Yeah, there's so much to talk about when it comes to last week. Another one of last week, yeah. week, yeah, yeah. Last week there was a small increase in mortgage rates. MBS prices fell just a little bit, and you know that was that was despite some pretty good economic data. Uh, yeah. Last week the existing home sales came out at near the best level in seven years. So, uh, uh, you know, in contrast to today's pending home sales, uh, existing home sales was really good. Uh, last week, durable orders came in. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, well, and, and going back to the pending home sales, there are a couple, you know, the realtors put that out. The realtors uh, uh, attribute some of that drop in price to the weather in the east and the Midwest. But then 
also the biggest drop came out of the west and uh the weather certainly wasn't an issue there so much as uh as realtors say the prices are uh, have risen to the point where uh, it's just hard you know, hard to get people to 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 sign to buy a contract you know sign the contract to buy a home so but uh existing home sales were good last week and then uh, I mentioned durable orders they uh rose 5% following a 5% drop the month before now some of that could have just been uh you know, uh, transactions spilling out of one month and into the next, but uh, you know it was up. And then fourth quarter GDP, the second estimate came out at, at up one percent. Now uh, the consensus was that it would show that the fourth quarter grew at only four tenths of a percent. So it too was a miss to the upside. Upside, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe the biggest issue or the biggest concern anyway came in the form of um, core PCE. Uh, core PCE rose in January to an annualized rate of 1.7%. Now, throughout almost all of 2015, that was in the 1.2, 1. 1. 1.3% range. Uh, in December, it went up to 1.4, and then this month it went up to 1.7. Now, considering also the most recent uh, uh, core uh, CPI, Showed a similar increase in, in pickup inflation in the last three months, and uh, you know you put those two together, and you begin to have a little bit of concern about uh, where inflation might be headed. Um, in the not so good category last uh, last week, new home sales fell, consumer confidence fell, and jobless claims rose. So, uh, fortunately, new home sales is a very small percentage of the market uh, as compared to existing home sales. But again, the, the pending home sales is of uh, existing homes, contracts signed for existing homes. So that, as you mentioned, might uh, indicate a drop in activity in the months to come. This week, Dave, we've got uh, a, a couple big issues, big items to be concerned about. Of course, the jobs report on Friday. The uh, consensus, current consensus, consensus calls for 190,000 net new jobs, uh, no change in the unemployment rate. And you might remember the last jobs report showed inflation, wage inflation rising substantially, uh, up five-tenths for the month. Uh, that's expected to fall back to up two-tenths, but uh, it's still showing inflation in, in wages. Before the jobs report, though, we've got uh, ISM manufacturing comes out tomorrow along with construction spending. The ADP jobs report comes out on Wednesday. They, too, are expecting 190,000 net new jobs. Um, ISM services on Thursday, and uh, so it you know looks like a pretty significant week of uh, economic news. Uh, there have been uh, drivers of, of mortgage prices and mortgage rates that were not of an economic nature, so we always have to keep our uh, eyes on that as well. So uh, look for Friday at eight thirty. Yeah. Friday eight thirty. Going to be another interesting week, and then. Yeah, but then we always wait for the outliers, the the news from overseas or China or whatever right. else like Trump, that trump our economic data. So it's going to be real interesting. Yeah, that Freddie Mac rate survey started heading down from the almost two weeks of kind of holding fairly even. So we'll see what happens this week. Joe, thank you so much for bringing this. It's great sure. seeing you again, being with you. Always so much fun. And when you were out at the – you were we were together here recently and at a, an event and uh, – Joe said, you know, Dave, it's real fun because I heard someone walk up to me and say, oh, I recognize you. You're on the, on the radio. <laughs> That's so much fun. <laughs> it, it's good to 
get the reinforcement people are listening. So appreciate you being a part of this, Joe. Really do. You bet. Really, really do. Thank you. We've got Paul Malo on the line. We're going to dial him up right after this ad break, so stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief word. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS QuoteLend delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect and know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS QuoteLine, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS QuoteLine today at MBS. MBSQuoteLine.com. MBSQuoteLine.com. 646-716-4972. The Lincoln on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lincoln. You know, there's so many ways in which you get information. We provide this weekly podcast, but you can get a daily email into your email box. And I just had mine land in my inbox from... Uh, their team there at imfnews.com. Check it out, www.imfnews.com. And the guy that's uh, so good to come on and talk to us about all the stories is Paul Malo. Good to have you with us, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What's going on? Yeah, so, yeah I love your deal, endangered species. So <laughs> run it through the headlines here. Gosh. Uh, what can we say? Listen, uh, you know, subprime, you know, there are companies that built their future on being the garbage man of the industry, like Aquin, you know, Nation Star and Walter, and they're, you know, they're they're quickly trying to, um, you know, figure out their future now that subprime servicing is, you know, disappearing. And and the lead story is about the numbers we crunched. At year end, there were roughly three hundred billion dollars in subprime mortgages outstanding, which is essentially the servicing rights, down from one point four. Um, 1.24 trillion at the end of 2006. I mean, it's just you know it's a 76% decline. Um, so companies are trying to figure out you know what do, what do we do now, and that leads to story number two. You know, Aquin has had uh, you know a number of problems the last few years, uh, not least of which has been its regulatory problems. You know, uh, you know alleged violations on loan servicing protocol and this and that. Uh, they just booked a, a huge loss for the fourth quarter, $224 million. Over the Whoa. past two years, a company, which is publicly traded, of course, has lost $715 million. Its stock is getting clocked today. At one time, it was $60 a share. Uh, now it's down under five. I mean, I, I just don't know what to say about this company anymore. I mean, they're they're trying to figure out their future. They're paying down debt. They're selling servicing and. Uh, you know, they're an enigma. <laughs> so, um, you know, plenty yeah. to write about there, and we'll keep writing about it. Uh, an interesting story, number three, by uh, Tom Ressler. The, um, Mayor Brown, big law firm, I think they're based in Chicago. Uh, they apparently hired away some of the top mortgage legal eagles in the nation um, from K&L Gates, and that includes, among others, Larry Platt or Lawrence Platt, oh, Phil really? Shulman, Steve Kaplan. Yeah, this is a real interesting hire. This happened late Friday, the news uh came out we have it on the website so the story's there to see i mean to see it it's an interesting um i don't know what you call it they they rated their staff or whatever and uh i guess it's a loss for k and l gates and a gain for uh mayor brown uh, i mean obviously with trid and cfpb issues you know uh, a key thing for the industry they just got some of the best talent uh legal talent out there so yeah. Um, K&L Gates declined to comment, and, and I just, you know, a very interesting uh, change in, in some top 
mortgage legal talent. So we'll, we'll just leave it at that. You can see the story. Um, we also have a story out there. A uh, big problem for reviving the non-agency MBS market has been, uh, you know, uh, the not, you know, what to do with deal agents and whatnot. Brandon Ivy of our staff is out at the ABS E show. Uh, there's been there's been some progress on the deal agent issue, and we mentioned that in the short take section as well. Uh, I suggest that the the audience go look at those stories and see what that's about. Uh, another big loss for the fourth quarter, Walter. They lost 117 million dollars. A goodwill impairment charge. Some of that's tied to servicing. Uh, you know, that's a company too. Like Aquin has got to prove itself. But uh, at least in in Walter slash Ditex Defense, you know, they've built up their production arm. They've made some key hires. Uh, you know, and they are growing production. You know, Aquin keeps saying they want to be a top ten lender, but we've yet to see anything. Uh, you know, concrete that they're doing to to even get there. We do know that at least, you know, NationStar and Walter have made inroads uh, inroads in being uh, big uh, originators and producers. Uh, so Aquin continues to be the the one member of that that trio that that quite frankly needs to prove you know where they're going to to investors. And until they do, uh, their stock is going to be what I guess some people refer to as dead money. It's just not going anywhere. Uh, I don't know how much lower it can go than five bucks a share. But that comes a problem too. Anyone knows anything about investing knows that a lot of the big institutional investors won't won't touch a stock if it's under five bucks a share. And if Aquin stock stays under five dollars a share, well then there's an issue. Okay, short take section real quick. I mentioned the deal agent thing. Uh, they, at the ABSC show, that that news is just coming out. Uh, it's in Vegas, and if you can get a deal agent uh, language in there, it might help revive the non-conforming, non-agency MBS market, which, quite frankly, has been hurt pretty bad now because of the TRID rule and TRID errors, and uh, there are, there's not too much talk of any jumbo MBS deals coming out uh, anytime soon that are going to be of uh, a big size. So uh, that's sort of the long and short of it. Freddie's got another stacker deal, uh, and HUD uh, took to task uh, the uh, first federal bank of Kansas City for redlining and mortgage discrimination against African Americans. Uh, and of course, we did we did mention one last people item. Brian Warren now used to be at Morgan Stanley. A lot of people uh, on the street know who he is in the mortgage business. Uh, he just accepted a position with Clayton Holdings. We actually reported that two weeks ago, but it became official uh, this morning with Clayton putting out a release on it. So that's uh, all the essentials for today. One quick question. Several people sure. just were texting me as you're uh, sending in from uh, your talking, Paul, and they were actually talking about some of these companies that have been working in the non, you know, non-QM space. Uh, Dan Pearl's company, uh, Citadel, right, Citadel, Citadel, sure. Then, yeah, and then New Pan and some of these companies that are doing there. What, what's your any sense of the where they're shifting their focus as a result of this, or are they? Are they? I mean, do they are, are they eternal optimists? What's what's your thought? <laughs> Well, listen. From you know, I know some of these people, and and you know, they'll talk to me. No, you do. You're uh, Not exactly on the record, but uh, you know, as long as they have a secondary market investor, and, and a lot of them do, they can get through some of these trade issues. Oh, I'm not saying that it right. hasn't been easy. Angel Oak's been particularly quiet lately. We haven't heard from them. Citadel, I know, has got a uh, an investor too they can rely on, and and they they seem to be okay. Uh, you know, New Penn, uh, they don't do a lot of the, uh, you know, the alt-day subprime stuff that Citadel and Angel Oak are doing. So uh, I can't really speak to them. But, you know, there's still huge opportunity, or at least there's a lot of private equity and hedge fund guys who, who like this space because they see these mortgages being uh, ridden at 6 7 8 
And, you know, the hope is that, you know, yeah, yeah, this is a good yielding piece of paper. And, you know, no one's making crazy, uh, you know, uh, 95% LTV loans on it. Exactly uh, but right. TRID is an issue. Let's 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 oh, yep. you know. It's the regulatory you know, We didn't risk. talk it's, about it's, TRID, uh, but that's something we've been reporting on for you know for several weeks and months. And the problems in the secondary market have yet to be cleared up because that clarifying letter that CPB sent to MBA is is just a letter. And uh, there's a lot of attorneys out there who don't think it provides any legal protection, even if you have minor errors on this stuff. Uh, you know, there's been lots of talk about some of the mega bank consolidators kicking these uh, trid loans that have problems on them back to the primary market originators, and that yep. it's still an issue. And there's still a secondary market for scratch and dent trid loans, and uh, it's not going away um, anytime yep. soon. So good, Paul. Thanks so much, folks. Check out I M F I M F News dot com. I can spell it out, enunciate it clearly here in my fast talk but paul thanks so much for taking time thank it's a great you. Uh, blog you do a great job getting this information out i don't know how people live without it how do they live without joe Farr's rate service and uh mbs quote line how do they live without not having this on landing your desk every single day it's great stuff appreciate it paul greet everyone thank there you. for me Bye-bye. let's run over to alice alvey it's always good to have her back on the radio she had some time off last week and Played, uh, well, she got down and had some fun with one of our mutual dear, dear friends, so Jan Wetzel. So it's good to have you back, Alice, and then you're going to be on the Hot Topics segment. But give us a little rundown on some of the legislative stuff going on. Sure thing, Dave. Yeah, it is back. Came, I'm glad that uh, we got 14 inches of snow back at home while I was down in Florida, so that worked out just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> was your husband texting you pictures with grumbly signs on it? You know, he, and, well, he was. I was getting pictures of all the snow, <laughs> for sure. So, 14 uh, inches. <laughs> yeah, I know it was something. So anyway, so from the legislative standpoint here, we do yep. have a couple of things, uh, and really just agency update as well. So um, anyway, the rural housing came out with a lot of changes to uh, technical changes to the handbook. Uh, this was just announced at the end of last week. It's going to be effective for all conditional commitments issued on or after March 9th, 2016, which is like tomorrow. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like, you know, it's uh, when someone says something a week is a week away or two weeks away, that feels pretty fast nowadays. Um, so there's 80 pages of new information. So for those of you who like the rural housing, it is a great product. You need to get out there and read that because it does seem like there are quite a lot of um, changes out there. Um, CFPB does have a proposed rule related to our hot topic. And so I thought I'd bring that up now instead of kind of clouding the yeah, uh, hot yes. topic with it. So there is a proposed rule. It is really just for comment on the resubmission guidelines, which is top of mind for a lot of folks right now who are looking at hitting that submit button on their Humda report as we speak. It's February 29th, uh, filing day for Humda reporting. And you have, uh, for this particular issue, it's March 14th is when the comments all need to come in by. So we need to tell CFPB a few things about how do you determine that your Humda report is inaccurate? What are the thresholds? So today we use, uh, if you're less than 100,000 units, it's 10% overall error you know, across the report or 5% in, in any individual field. And there's a little bit of a, a waterfall process that goes with that. But ultimately, CFPB is saying, should we continue to use error percentages like this? What other methodology could we use? 
should there be a higher asset threshold, you know, for those larger lenders that have more than 100,000 units on the LAR? And then if so, then how do we define something as either systemic or you just had a one-off error, you know, bad day at the office and you had maybe a period of time where data wasn't getting to the report correctly? So it's a, it's a long list of questions, and I think it's really in the middle of this proposed rule that, or, or uh, request for comment, I should say, that I really think mortgage bankers need to get out there and comment. We need to have a voice about how to be able to clarify uh, the procedures and justify or be able to support our position that when I had good procedures and I just had a technical breakdown, or like for some companies, there's a true disconnect in the way the LOS is operating versus how they have to report for NMLS reporting, and that's conflicting with HUMDA reporting. There are plenty of examples like that from a technology standpoint that you should be commenting to this so that the CFPB makes some adjustments in how they define fines and penalties. We have very little boundaries on this. It's it's a wide-open fine and penalty bucket for us when we make mistakes, and I think this is an opportunity to help draw some boundaries and give uh, give them some ideas for how to give us some leeway. And we'll be talking more about that in the hot topic in terms of what we're faced with today and with the new rule. Um, So all of that is due by March 14th. Um, So if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email and um, really should get some comments posted out there. I'm not aware if the MBA is going to comment on this. I will be checking with them to see if they're planning to put something together. Sometimes, for those of you, they come out with that at the last minute. So if you just hit reply and say ditto (laughs) when you file your comments, then uh, they're enough and it's a good path as well. Um, so I think as I look at my notes here, those are the main things um, that I wanted to cover today. And I'll turn it back to you so we have plenty of time for our hot topic. Yes, definitely. We need all the minutes we can to cover this top hot topic <laughs> issue uh, for sure. The uh, one thing I want to say is you can, if you're not signed up for Mortgage Action Alliance, MAA, uh, Google it, get signed up. It's an effective way to get your voice heard with your specific representative. I'm not sure what technology they're using or how they're going about it, but it searches, you put in your zip code, and it sends it off, sends off the, the notices, folks, to exactly your representatives, to the right people. Very, very, very effective tool. So, Alice, thank you so much. Appreciate you being here with us. We're going to be right back right after this brief break. Stay tuned. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. You know what? Your success is uh, their focus. Check it out. Go over to Indicom. Give Alice a call. Great resource. Wonderful resource. And that's why we have her on here as well as we just generally like Alice. And so stay tuned to the Hot Topics segment we're going to have her on. Normally we would have Sam Garcia coming on, but Sam is uh, traveling today. But check out Sam's uh, website at mortgagedaily.com. And so let's see here. I want to get over to Jim Jump, get that, and then we got the Profit Doctor going to get his update here in just a minute. Real interested in that. But uh, Jim Jump, who is the um, Arch Mortgage Insurance's Chief Marketing Officer, wants to share a brief word about the Rate Star program. 
Hello, David, and thanks for having me on the program. Today, I want to share some information about RGMI's most dynamic and competitive rate program. It's called RGMI RateStar, and it's a revolutionary mortgage insurance pricing solution that goes well beyond traditional MI rate sheets to provide our most competitive rates match precisely with your borrower. RateStar is now available, and all you need is your NMLS number to start using RateStar today. RateStar allows for our customers to obtain our most competitive rate for each loan they insure with RGMI, and in many cases, with considerable savings over traditional rate card pricing. Mortgage originators are letting us know that they like how easy it is to access RateStar, just how easy it is to use, and they really like the innovative design. RateStar is available to our customers via Archimai's website at archimai.com or archimicu.com for credit unions. And the mobile app is available for Apple and Android devices. It is fully integrated with most loan origination systems and product and pricing engines. And with that, David, I will turn it back over to you and say thank you for the time. You bet, Jim. Good. Check it out, folks, at their website. Really interesting product. Very innovative. I love that website. Ah, Profit Doctor, so good to have you back. I know you've been traveling. You're so busy these days, as you should Hi, be. Yeah. Call people Glad need your service. It's good to have you back. So we also well, we are know very, very busy. That's really good. It's really, really good to hear. Well, you know, when you look at the troubles and challenges facing everybody, the costs are up through the roof. And I'm sure when it comes to that, everyone's looking for a profit. And uh, to get the, if it's alien, get the profit doctor, also known as Andy Shell. What you got for us today? I know you're doing a webinar. I wanted, I'd love to get an update. How'd that go last week? And how many people are there? And anticipate that uh, going well. It's just your sixth, seventh, eighth time doing it. But anyway, tell us about it. Well, a quick update on the webinar and then a, a quick slide over into Humda. And one other quick topic. Uh, the accounting webinar is going great. We're having a really good attendance. There's people, people from all over the country listening in, asking about it, wanting to learn what it really means to track your loan level detail. It's, it's still astounding to me that people cannot produce a branch profitability report or can't produce a loan originator profitability report. You have to have that information in order to generate your NMLS data report. You have to have loan level detail. And that's what the webinar is going to talk about coming up this Thursday is loan level accounting and then followed by hedging for accountants, which we get into the the, the fancy words that you hear Joe use all the time about implied volatility and duration weighted and servicing multiple curves. And so we, we demystify secondary marketing for accountants. We take, we, take it, we take the black box and open it up and explain to accountants how negative convexity exists, how you measure it, how it works. So we demystify it for people. And then lastly, we're going to talk about hedge accounting. But, you know, today we're talking about Humda. And yes. every quarter or every year, depending on how big you are, if you're filing MBFRF, you have to submit your NMLS report. Well, and just like the Humda report, it's got to be right. You can't guess, can't make it up, got to be correct. You know, and unless you've, you're doing low-level accounting, you're not submitting your NMLS report right. So mortgage bankers are, are operating in an environment where we've got data that's got to go to the government, and that data gets looked at by Department of Labor and Department of Justice in addition to the state regulators. So, you know, we, it's going to cost more to do it right, but we're going to have to have compliance people. We're going to have to have accounting people just accept this as a new way of business. The new normal is you have to have administrative detail, and I don't mean you take your bookkeeper and make them 
a CFO because you have to have qualified people to deal with this stuff. But we're going to have to increase our margins to cover the cost, so just start ratcheting up your margins already because it's just a reality of business in this new consumer-focused world where we're going to deliver a more expensive product because of the rules. But that's the world we live in. Um, I just said a bunch of stuff that I'm sure a lot of people are going, well, but, well, but, well, but. Uh, so I'll, I'll wrap yep. it up by one last quick point, which was uh, um, I have the privilege of working with one of our clients who is launching an employee stock ownership program where the the employees are going to become the owner of the business and receive a, a pension plan. Basically, you're going to receive payout from the company if they leave or if they retire. And it makes it's a way for owners who want to transition to be able to transition at a very favorable price on a tax pre-tax basis, great tax treatment, and an amazing benefit to the employees where the employees are now owners of the business and participate in the profits of the business as the pension plan grows. So we'll talk about that later some other time more, but ESOPs are are becoming in fashion again. So there you go, Dave. Love to get that. In fact, we may need to do a hot topic on that one because there are a number of people wanting to learn more about that. So that's good, Annie. Excellent. Appreciate you being here. So good to have you back. Good to have you participating in the hot topic discussion as we get over there with Alice. But first, we're going to run over and get, you know, every week, folks, we do the KPI of the week. I love getting these reports. And uh, the one that we ran last week, uh, several people said, could you run that one again? I need to get that one. I need to get it. So we've got John Maynell uh, recorded, and let's get over and get find out what the latest KPR week is. If you heard it last week, we're repeating it by request. So here it is. Thank you very much, David. Always great to be here. And this week's key performance indicator is processing to underwriting days, which can give you a very clear picture of your processing cycle time as a departmental average and can also become one of a group of measurements that can be combined and balanced to help optimize individual performance as well. Now, like most cycle time measurements, it can be driven by efficiencies and productivity within a department, in this case processing, or it can lead to examining the preceding processes and setup or sales that affect the measurement as much or perhaps more than any individual processor does. So like any KPI, it's truly multifaceted and can drive improvements in a number of areas, proving once again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will thank you again and turn it back to you. There you go, folks. Played it again. It's a, it, it's really true. What gets measured gets results, and it's a, great to have you be with us. And, of course, we are talking today in a Hot Topic segment with Alice Alvey, Senior Vice President of Indicom Global Services. She uh, has been with, uh, she owned uh, Indicom, excuse me, she owned uh, Mortgage Dash U for years, and then Indicom saw the value in it, picked her company up, and uh, she leads that charge there. They're doing some very innovative things in a number of areas, but today we're talking about HMDA, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. Alice, good to have you here with us, and thanks so much for taking time to give us a rundown on this and bringing us up to speed on all that's happening and the changes with HMDA. Thanks, Dave. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's good, especially coming off a of vacation. We're you know fresh and re, all refreshed. It's good. 
14 inches of snow in Detroit. Yikes. All right, so we're not going to go on to the snow report. Let's talk about how many are snowed over by this, if we're playing on that. uh, (laughs) uh, They're snowed under, snowed over with this. And Humda data collection has been around for a long time, Alice, but what is the purpose of Humda? Let's get back and cover what is this thing about in the first place and uh, uh, talk about that. Well, you know, originally it was about – um, property and location, right? I mean, the, uh, where were the lenders lending? And so everything was focused on the location of the property. And I remember someone saying, you know, it was all of a sudden, like all of a sudden they started noticing, hey, there's all this borrower information on here as well. Let's start looking at, you know, um, who we're lending to and the type of borrower. And so over the years I've sat with in many an audit and kept asking you know, what are we trying to get to here? Are we trying to get to that we treated one person unfairly or did we treat multiple people? So, you know, today and over history, it really has ended up serving as almost the foundation from a lender's viewpoint anyway of what you will be measured by in where you lend and the credit decisions that you make. And are those uh, decisions applied fairly across race, sex, ethnicity, geographic regions, and so that's really kind of the bottom line to it, you know, that it's much more than what it used to be, and it and it's now going to be having quite a few more data fields, which means the, the regulators will have more at their fingertips to analyze right out of the mm. gate and then have a different methodology for selecting loans from that point. So today they have a set list of data that they get from us, on an annual basis, and they use that to select audit-originated loans versus withdrawn and denied and then um, determine whether or not there's some disparity in your numbers and they need to come into your shop to audit. I will say also, I remember uh, looking online one time, and if you found and came across that there was grant money out there, so if you're the person who goes, I love to analyze data, <laughs> there were, there were uh, companies offering. <laughs> That's an Andy Shell deal. That's for earn sure. Money, right. <laughs> you could, uh, if you know how to file for a grant, they would, there were grant, there was grant money available to pay people to audit the, the lender of your choice. Um, so that's one of the challenges wow. with public data. If someone decides they want to go look at it to see how your shop is operating. So I guess that's, you know, the original purpose has changed versus how it's used today. You know, that's why I think when you look at the regulation and you look at what something starts out as and then what it becomes is something else. 25 new data points and modifies 14 other existing data points. It it is really overwhelming. But who is required to file a HMDA report, Alice? (laughs) So uh, I think that's one of the changes that people are looking at. As a matter of fact, uh, Andy and I, we were talking, Andy Schell, we were talking about that before we got on the show here. So you know, if you're a depository, you actually may have the opportunity to get out of filing. So now it's uh, there's a, a smaller threshold there for the depositories, so that'll change from did you have 25 home purchase uh, loans, including refinances, and then now it's going in the last um, two years, and now it's going to change to did you have at least 25 closed end in the two calendar years or open lines of credit. So that's another criteria that's going to be changing is the idea that lenders um, with uh, HELOCs will now be having to factor in that into their account for whether or not they would need to um, file the report. Um, So that's one change uh, for the depositories. For the non-depositories, 
you walk, you know, in either case, you go to the Humda Guide, getting it right, and there's this nice little yes-no flow chart for if you have to report. If you're a non-depository, this group, now there are more people that will likely have to file. And just pay attention to little nuances. Um, I'll give you an example. For a long time, you walked through the first couple of boxes and you said, oh, I, I may not have to report because I'm too small. Uh, one of the criteria is do I underwrite the loan, right? So when, whenever you're reading something related to Humda, to identify if you have to file, when they use the term originate, that means you underwrote the loan and it closed. So as you're saying, all right, well, I might meet the threshold criteria, but then I get to this box that says, did I originate 100 or more home purchase loans? Um, which is, you know, they use the word purchase that includes even refinances. Did I make the loan decision on 100? That was kind of the general criteria we've used forever, and that'll still carry off into 2017. That number is going to drop. And when we get into 2018, starting January 1st, the criteria will be for only 25 closed-end mortgages. And now they're going to look at the last two-year window. So instead of just a one-year window, it's looking at a two-year so lenders need to double-check if you thought you did not have to file because you didn't hit this 100-loan threshold. Or another thing was there used there, today there's a $10 million threshold. Um, so maybe your net worth was or your um, total assets were less than that and you didn't have to file. That's going away. Uh, so maybe you were making those loan decisions, oh. but you didn't hit that $10 million asset threshold. So that's two criteria I think that's important for non-depositories to check out. Uh, which means you need to start figuring out how the data now. Better do it. Wow. Yeah, Andy I already, yeah, go ahead. I'm already going to – just listening to Alice talk for three minutes, I'm already going, okay, now wait. I'm sorry. So <laughs> i gotta, I got to call Alice and, and go, so do I do I have to do this or not? You know, it's one of those things become kind of binary when you get your eyes rolled back in your head. So, Alice, you have so much knowledge on this stuff. It's amazing. What an amazing resource all of the listeners have right at their fingertips. All they got to do is type you an email or give you a call, and they can get everything they ever needed to know. Um, <laughs> Thank so you. I'm, I've, always, <laughs> I've always wondered, though, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about the NMLS stuff going to DOJ and DOL, and but, you know, how is this data used, and, and more importantly, who uses it, and then kind of the tag on to that is that am I going to get in trouble because of it? Well, that's a uh, that's a good point. I, I mentioned a little bit, you know, that it could be used by the public. Um, it's going to definitely be used by your regulators. You should use it as well. I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss. They might look at it as that this is something that is just a burden. It just causes me challenges throughout the year. I have to have a body in place for somebody who does the Humba check, you know, every single loan that um, we have for every application that we take. Uh, so you start to feel it, but you can use it for marketing. I mean, there's great public data available. The CFPB has redesigned the website, so I recommend uh, go out there, look at what you you can find out about your competition. You can find out, you know, how much business is being done. So, you know, people absolutely use this for marketing as well as for auditing purposes. But you should know where you lend and how things are, are working out for your company because very often 
when people ask me, well, you know, if I have this particular policy in place, maybe a, a pricing policy or an interest rate or, a, you know, a rate extension policy, will I end up with a fair lending problem? Well, the answer is, well, that depends on your Humda data, right? And so if you already know where you stand and you're measuring it and knowing where you stand from a fair lending standpoint, it makes it easier to make some business decisions uh, related to products and interest rates. So the the key point there is don't just think regulators use it. You should use it too. That is a great point. We should use it ourselves. Wow, that's awesome. So as we look at this Humda data and all the stuff we're pulling together and you look at all these other reports we've got to generate like NMLS reporting and there's, you know, it's double double work. There's duplicate data. So what's the deal with this? How much of this Humda reporting is in the NMLS reporting and help me understand that. Well, I know you work with NMLS reporting a lot, Andy, like you mentioned in your segment before. So, um, you know, I'd like to get your feedback, too, on this. But from my vantage point, what I see is certainly action taken is an issue. And for Humder reporting, you're trying – and definition of an application, right? So for uh, Humder reporting, you're trying to define – did, it, did I take an application or not? And ECOA comes into play, right? Uh, or when, mm-hmm. when we're defining that from a system standpoint and for NMLS reporting. But for Humda, I'm concerned on do I have a property address or not, right, in order to have a reportable loan. So they don't match up. And I'm not aware of a lot of loan origination systems that are able to make that difference. I'd like to know what you see, right? You're out there as well. Um, how are lenders actually coping it with, from your vantage point with two different definitions for what goes on the report? Well, you know, the, because we've got the six fields in RESPA and most people use the address as the trigger, so the TBA address means it's ECOA and with a real value means it's RESPA, but that's, a, that's not universal. That, you make a great point, Alice. People are going to have to augment this a bit and probably put a flag in. So, if the in if the if all applications included ECOA, which is just basically a credit report poll, is a reportable event under um, the new rules, and it's not. I mean, it's it, that's a great point. The programmers have how long until they have to have this ready? Nine months. Well, uh, right. So we the loans the applications that we start taking January first of two thousand eighteen need to be on track, right? So you need to be ready as of January first. You don't want to be in cleanup mode. Um, so I just want to clarify one thing as we were defining what goes on Humda versus NMLS. NMLS is the report that usually needs more than what is on Humda. And so if you're thinking they're the same, I don't mean you, I mean our audience. If anybody in the audience is thinking those are a match. Your LOS probably has a field for you to exclude a loan from Humda, and that will be important to make sure you have procedures around. So the reporting requirements themselves uh, technically will, for all of the extra fields that Dave mentioned, you know, about 26 extra fields, you have to be hitting the ground running with all your your action taken date January 1st, right? So loans are reported in the year that the action was taken, uh, not the, the date that the application was taken. So some people might be going, okay, well, um, I don't have to worry about this, you know, uh, until mm-hmm. 2018. That's not true. You're going to probably have loans, especially like new construction, right? How long does that take to close? <laughs> so yeah, well, when exactly. the action was taken, when did it close, uh, that are hitting at the end of 2017? Well, and you make a great point that the mortgage originators, probably need to get on the phone with their LOS and say, how am I going to do this? What are you guys doing now to fix the system 
So come next January, I can capture the data I have to have on January 1. That That's a really important point. So I'll, I'll go on to this, this next point we were going to talk about, Alice, and, and that is, you know, why? Why are the reporting requirements changing? What what tipped in some bureaucrat's mind to say, oh, let's get more? <laughs> you know, uh, that's always a good question, right? Why do we have more regulation? This is certainly one of the last large components that came out of the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, I'm sure, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, and having lived through Humda audits uh, where, you know, they're they're looking at one set of criteria, right? And it's basically the property address, the borrower name, um, you know, race, sex, and ethnicity, just some high-level information. And for every single time they decide they want to audit Humda, they now have to get into all the differences, right? When they pull a loan and they go, okay, how come this loan was denied and this loan was approved? And they're asking that of the lender. You know, this one was denied, this one was approved. Well, every time I would have to sit there and say, well, the credit score on this loan is 580. That's why we didn't do it. And the credit score on this loan is 800, and that's why we did approve it, right? Some very fundamental things of of differences in loans and why the, the decisions were different. So there's some sense that if we give more data to the regulator, will our audits actually be easier for us? They'll have some basic information that they'll already know about pricing and credit score and the age of the borrower in particular for reverse loans. Um, on the other hand, you go, okay, well, that's just more information that can be more dangerous than it serves as good right. because now it becomes more public. And um, so I think from the why standpoint, they wanted to have more that they could see without having to get into the loan files, which now, in my opinion, raises just more questions that we'll have to defend in audits. Exactly, it does. Wow, good job, Alice. Uh, hey, Alice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I wanted to, you know, with, with the requirements not being um, in place until 2018, what are you advising your customers, your clients, to do now about this? So, right, everybody's feeling the pain right now of trying to file the 2015 calendar or year um, reports and finding all their mistakes, right? We all have, a lot of lenders have procedural mistakes. You have loans that are on the report and shouldn't be. You have loans that didn't make it to the report and should have. You have, uh, most shops have constant challenges with, uh, withdrawn, denied, and closed for incompleteness. So the process we're recommending to companies is spend 2016 reviewing your procedures, have somebody from the outside double-check and test. We uh, certainly um, have the ability to do that. And, and be able to then report on where your errors are. And then so go through that in 2016 so you have time to fix things. It take, This takes time, right? You're going to have one group that's worrying about the new reporting but you've got to clean up the garbage you have now <laughs> before you now get double the fields. Um, so that's what we're saying. Clean house, this is the year to clean house because you'll be implementing the new fields and needing to test them so that everything's ready by really June of next year. You should be ready to go so you can test this. We all just lived a major technology hurdle, right, with TRID. Right, <laughs> right. learned some valuable lessons about last-minute planning. All right, so that kind of leads me to my next question, which is the the data that creates the Humda records is all sitting in your LOS, right? And in the, in the LOS, um, uh, can't you just data dump into the Humda reports from the LOS and feel pretty good about things? 
Well, a lot of the fields that does work very well for us. So, you know, what we work with lenders on is which of those fields do you have a high degree of confidence on? And certainly on a closed loan, you can get a high degree of confidence on a lot of fields because it went through so many um, hands. Uh, the, the things that become the bigger challenges are, you know, a loan that's withdrawn or denied, right? You can have three people sitting around a desk looking at a particular file, and perhaps all three of you have a different opinion on, well, is that withdrawn? Did the borrower actually withdraw or did we deny it because there was 35 conditions, right? <laughs> so um, mm. that's the decision trees that are very manual that the LOS cannot handle for you. Um, so there still are quite a few fields that require either really solid policies and procedures and then some folks who are trained well to know what side of the fence, like a withdrawn, denied, or close point completeness would fall. So if the LOS doesn't it captures the data that has to go on the report, but it's the procedures behind it, I call it the three-legged stool, right? You have the, the, the LAR itself, the loan application register that you file. You have your report, uh, the actual, um, I'm sorry, you have your system, your LOS, and then you have your documents in your file. And that's the component that very often trips people up. Um, so you can have like um, the LAR shows 5000 a month in income, but the loan file is showing 4500 It's not showing the same number. And or someone went in and changed it after it closed or after your LAR was filed. <laughs> so now when a regulator looks at your LOS, that component doesn't match the LAR. So all three parts have to match. Wow. And is it is it the, the decision tree that you talk about, especially on the loans that don't go to closing, is is it terribly subjective? Well, we try and make it logical, right, that, you know, basically if I know loan processing, even a good originator, you know, can say, okay, if I had this step, um, yes or no, should it be considered in a, uh, withdrawn or denied? And so we can design those based on the company's procedures. Uh, where it gets a little challenged is did it go to underwriting or not, right? And did my borrower actually withdraw or did we... Um, coerce them. So, yes, I'm a firm believer you can set some really good benchmarks for your staff members to use so they make the right decision on that. But you have to have that in writing so they can reference it all the time. Uh, it's not something that your software will do. It's not something that AUS does for you. Mm. And just because you have an AUS approval doesn't mean the loan was approved as far as HMDA's concerned. HMDA's definition for approval is really tight. Right, you you can't have all those conditions outstanding. Um, needs to be reviewed by someone with lending authority, and you had minimal conditions, and that's not usually how we classify an approval in our LOS. So there's disconnect there too. Wow, Dave, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, thank you, Joe. <laughs> Look at all this stuff; it's just really amazing. So I'm looking at the clock. This program just runs so quickly. We have six minutes before we go out the door here, but give us some idea about the fines and penalties. Uh, if the report is wrong? Well, you know, there's not a magic number. You know, the uh, more recent case that, uh, the C of course, the CFPB has had control of this for a few years now, um, and so the, their case was uh, a company that 425000 and uh, 34000 for another company, you know, and their reports weren't huge. The $34,000 fine was for 5700 and entries on the um, report. 
and the $425,000 report, or fine, I'm sorry, was for 21,000 entries on the report. So, you know, those weren't um, significant uh, filings. I mean, especially the 5,700, that's not an uncommon range for a lot of mid-sized lenders. So that's a lot of money. Uh, there isn't a magic number that goes with, you know, if I have this many errors, is it X dollars per day that I don't fix it? Um, if you go to the CFPB bulletin, that was it was a 2013, it was 13-11. This one illustrates the things that they'll look at to determine what are the fines and penalties. Um, I had a customer call me up uh, about filing their report last week. They realized they had thousands of errors. They had made a huge mistake in how they were managing one particular aspect of the action taken and the action taken date. And they realized that before they filed their report. Well, when you hit submit, you're certifying to the accuracy of that report. So now they're in a conundrum, right? Do I file knowing I have errors or do I self-report? Um, so CFPB talks about that, you know, could I reduce my fines and penalties if I self-reported? And, you know, what's the timing in that? So I will always advise to seek legal counsel if you have a lot of errors on your report. Um, I, I can't stress that enough. Uh, there's a practical way to go about that in terms of um, how to file and, and making corrections. But also we had one of our clients who was audited by the CFPB, and the CFPB is giving them some corrective action direction but not giving them a fine. Um, so oh, okay. it says a lot when, yeah, it says a lot when you've got some good uh, policies and procedures and you may not yeah. get hit with the dollars. Mm -hmm. can, lend, can lenders refile if they see they have some errors? Uh, yes, you can refile. As a matter of fact, you should refile if you exceed the 10% overall error threshold across the report or 5%. Some companies like to give themselves a lot of room, right? They figure if they caught 10%, CFPB might call, you know, another percent um, an error that they missed. So we recommend using lower numbers, right? If, in any field, you might have like 3% error rate. You should look at refiling. Um, if you have any more than maybe a 7 or 8%, and again, I'm always going to say seek legal counsel, talk with them about the types of errors because that can make a difference um, on the refiling. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there are some things that might be driven by technology as to why the error occurred. Uh, those are um, sometimes things you can, you know, provide back with explanation. So, um, yeah, you, you should yeah. refile and talk to an attorney about refiling. Yes. We're working on getting an attorney to come on here in a couple of weeks uh, to talk about <laughs> yeah, this, really get into it. Excellent advice. Where can companies get help, help on Humda? Andy kind of answered this. We all know that you're a great resource. Where can companies go? Well, I mean, certainly one? there are a lot of uh, companies that, you know, might be one-on-one. -on -one. I, I, you can – some people try and do some self-help, right? Hire a bunch of temporaries to come in <laughs> and start to clean up your data. And if they just give them this little checklist, will they make it? Well, one of our customers, the CFPB, didn't like that methodology and actually wrote them up for not training the trainees, not training the temporary people well, uh, not being able to defend the procedures that the trainees used. So anytime you're in the process of having to fix your Humda report, you have to have your working papers. You can't just say, I got all these people, I put them in a room, and they all went in and fixed it, and and now I'm better now, right? <laughs> I feel better now. Right, right. I got all these people in my computer system. They want to see exactly what they did, how they did it. 
Um, so what we do is we use our Kaizen software. It's a checklist, reporting. It's a fully documented workflow process and training and flow so that, you know, if you've had errors that need fixing and you need thousands of errors fixed and maybe you need, you know, 25 people to jump on it, we will organize that project to help you with that and make sure that you have the working papers to back up what was done on that to make the corrections. So, um, And also consulting, right? Uh, you need somebody to come yeah. in, read your procedures, make sure you don't have gaps, and, you know, we'd be happy to jump in and help with that too. I've watched you work, Andy, and I have watched you work so many times, and it is just excellent, the resource you are. So much additional information that you can get while you're helping with one area. You also say, oh, by the way, have you looked at this, 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 and this? And it really opens opens up. You really um, do a great job. Uh, When I try to to do this themselves, it's like physician, heal yourself. It's like I see the guy that reminds me of that one ad where you see a guy trying to do his own appendectomy or his uh, appendix, epidectomy, and he's literally, he's cutting himself. And I go, unbelievable. You can't do this by yourself, folks. Get help. Alice is a great place to start. And then reach out to folks like Andy and all the aspects of where you can go to get solutions for this. It's good to have you with us, everybody. It's been really good to have you back and on the program talking about not the most exciting topic, but one we need to pay attention to. And like you said, you cannot assume that well, this is out in the future, so I don't have to worry about it. You better start worrying about it. In fact, so, many, so much so that many are saying that we need to just pass, get an extension on this. So the NBA is working on that, but get a hold of Alice, get a hold of us. We're happy to help you in any way, shape, or form we can. Good to have you with us, everybody. It's, again, uh, Ben uh, Alice Alvey. Uh, Senior Vice President of Indicom, talking about Humda. Look forward to having you back next week. We're going to be talking next week. Jess Letterman uh, is a, a veteran of the industry, along with Jeff Leibowitz, will be on. We're talking about the book that we all contributed chapters to. It's called The Mortgage Handbook, the Mortgage Banker's Handbook 2020. Looking forward, and it's, it's just a three-volume series. I got a privilege of uh, contributing to a chapter on this. We're going to be talking about it. It's a valuable resource. I'm really excited to both have Jess and Jeff on the program next week to talk about the program. Good to be with you, everybody. Have a great rest of the week. We'll look forward to seeing you back here next week. Tell others about the program. Thank you. See you back here next week. This has been Lincoln on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening. 